church. My name is John Ross. I am the assistant pastor here, one of the many bearded pastors here. So if you're at a distance, I'm usually the guy that's playing guitar or playing piano. I have the joy of preaching God's word today from the book of Ruth. So if you'd open your Bibles to Ruth, starting with chapter one. Now, don't get scared. I am going to preach through the whole book, but we're not going to read the whole book right now. I encourage you to do that later today. But what we're going to do is we're going to read short passages throughout the text to help give us an idea of what's happening. I'll fill in the blanks in between, okay? We're going to start with Ruth chapter 1. If you've got one of the black Bibles in front of you, as we mentioned earlier, it's on page 222. Thank you, Bobby, for reading that, that long passage earlier. I think we're set up well to get into the book of Ruth. All right, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read 1 through 5 and then take a break. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malin and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So after this, Naomi tries to convince both of her daughters-in-law to go back to their families. Orpah takes her up on the offer, while Ruth doubles down and commits herself to Naomi, saying she'll never leave her. As Bobby read for us earlier, Ruth and Naomi go to Bethlehem. It seems like Naomi is severely depressed. She calls herself Mara, which means bitter, and Ruth gets to work to provide for both of them. Now, the scripture says that she happens into the field of Boaz. Boaz, uh, we'll soon see, is a family redeemer, but we'll save that for just a minute. Let's pick up where we left off, chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14, see how Boaz treats Ruth. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So Boaz is taking care of Ruth. And Naomi is shocked that she brings home the equivalent of six gallons of barley from one day of work. So as they talk about the day, Naomi learns that Boaz is the man that she worked for. And she knows that Boaz is a family redeemer. In other words, Boaz is a man related to Ruth's deceased husband, whom she could marry. Let's read chapter 3, 
verse 1 through 9, to see what Naomi says. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz is honored by her request, but he, ha- he wants to do things the right way. There's a relative who is closer in relation. This man should be considered first. So first thing in the morning, Boaz sends her away, and he takes care of business to make sure that he can marry Ruth quickly and legally. He does just that. Let's fast forward to chapter 4. And we're going to read just verses 13 and 17. 4.13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Skip to 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of of David. We'll come back to our text, so keep a bookmark in it or put your finger in it, and let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge you as the giver of every good and perfect gift. You are the one who sits enthroned in heaven and the one who orchestrates our days. You are the God of the lowly and the downcast. You are also the God of the blessed and the powerful. Grant us grace to understand your ways, that we may walk uprightly, meeting each new day with faithfulness to you. Amen. Life is full of decisions. Many decisions are small and have nothing to do with what is right or wrong in God's sight. Should I get coffee out this morning? Should I uh, watch this Netflix show or read this comic book? Should I go to this college or that college? Those questions don't usually have a moral component. But if you're asking about if you should go out for coffee and you have no money and you have to steal from your roommate in order to get it, then no, you should not go for coffee. Or if the Netflix show or the comic is sexually graphic, then no, you should not watch those things or read those things. If one college is in a spiritual desert and there are no healthy churches there, no, you should not go to that college. In all of these situations, these everyday decisions we have to make, they should all be considered in light of faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful to the Lord in this instance? 
So today we're going to consider two people who were faithful to the Lord in everyday life. And though they are each faithful, they are each in drastically different circumstances. Ruth and Boaz both put their trust in the Lord, and the Lord is faithful to both of them. As we consider this account, we're going to consider this truth. You are called to be faithful to the Lord, no matter the circumstances, and you can trust that he will be faithful to you. So, big picture idea for our outline today, I'll give a short introduction. We'll consider Ruth, Boaz, and the Lord. Okay, so first a brief introduction. The author of Ruth tells us that this happened when the judges ruled. In other words, it happens during the time of the book of Judges. Now, if you've read the book of Judges, it is violent and gory and amazing in so many ways, but their faithfulness was not one of the amazing things. They were up and down all throughout this time period. Under the judges, God rescued his rebellious people again and again when they called out to him after rebelling against him. But because they continued to rebel, things got worse and worse. And this is when the book of Ruth occurs. There's a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem leaves with his wife and two sons. Now, this is particularly interesting because Bethlehem means house of bread, and there is a famine in the land. And even a man from the house of bread can't get bread on the table, so he leaves. Now, this shouldn't be, as Bert was preaching just last week from Deuteronomy 6, Israel is supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. But there are promises of blessing And there are curses for disobeying God's law. And so we see the evidence of the curse. Deuteronomy 28, 22 through 24 says, The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. The heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. So it says they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, Moab was a country of particularly despicable people, (laughs) to put it mildly. Moab is where King Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. Moab is the country that tempted Israel to sleep with them in celebration of Baal, and Israel accepted. God sent a plague that killed 24,000 in Israel. Moab is where King Eglon reigned, who ruled in the time of the judges, and Israel served him for 18 years. An Israelite has no business sojourning in Moab, let alone staying there, remaining there, as the text says. Now, after Elimelech dies, his sons take Moabite women as wives, which is itself an act of rebellion against God, for Israelites were not to take foreign wives. So Elimelech dies, the sons die, and the curse of God comes into view, where we read in Deuteronomy, cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. Israel is in rebellion against God in this period. So Naomi is left with two Moabite women of all people, two Moabites. All three are widowed and have no children. Unlike today, to be widowed was to be without aid or provision. This is an agrarian society. That means you had to work in the field in order to make money. You need others for support. You need land. So they are in a desperate situation. 
So Naomi tells both Orpah and Ruth, go back, go back to Moab. I'm going back to Israel. Go back to your gods. Orpah says yes. Ruth says no. Ruth is not the person we expect her to be. Ruth does not fit the Moabite mold. Ruth, though lowly, is faithful even in her lowliness. And that brings us to our first point. Ruth is faithful in her lowliness. We don't know exactly what Ruth knew about the Lord, the God of Israel. We do know that she was married to an Israelite man for 10 years. We know that she heard about God blessing Israel once again. Other than that, we can only guess. Although what she knows about God is certainly limited, she is faithful to the Lord in her lowliness in at least three ways. First, she prizes commitment over comfort. Naomi spends about half of chapter 1 telling her daughter-in-laws all the reasons why they should leave her. Return to your mother's house. It's a sign of comfort. Go to your mother. She blesses them in dismissing them, saying, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May he grant you rest. May he grant you new husbands in Moab. They both say, No, we're going with you, Naomi. Naomi again argues, and this is the sad part for Naomi, at least where her posture is. And she basically tells them, I can't have sons. If I were to have a son, would you wait for that son? I don't even have a husband yet. Naomi is fixated on this kind of family. I don't have any children left for you to marry. Go home. At this, all three of them weep. And Orpah chooses to go back to Moab, back to her family, back to what is familiar back to her culture, back to her people, back to her food, her music, her traditions, back to Moab, back to their gods. And it's hard to blame her. So many of those can be excellent things, praiseworthy things. And when we are hurting, we are prone to choose what is most comfortable, what is most familiar, what is most easy, what is close by. And when we do that, we often don't consider whether or not the choice we're making is the right one, only whether or not we will be comforted by it. Will I enjoy this? Will this give me ease? The only problem is that those things often become idols in our hearts when we choose these over faithfulness to the Lord. Orpah chose with her eyes and with her emotions. Ruth chose with faithfulness. So consider this. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, all three widowed and childless. But Naomi is widowed, childless, and aging. In an agrarian society where physical labor is required, it's more or less a death sentence. Ruth is asking the question, who will care for Naomi? Who will provide for her? How would she live? How would she find work or food? Who would take her in? Naomi might die without Ruth. So don't miss this, friends. This is, this is what makes Ruth so praiseworthy and so amazing. Ruth chooses to reject the comfort she knew in Moab and the familiarities of home and culture in order to pursue faithfulness by committing herself to Naomi. 
And you don't have to be from Israel to know that this is praiseworthy. Ruth is laying down her life for Naomi. She lays down her own desires to make sure that Naomi can live. She lays down an opportunity to return to comfort in order to serve her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Ruth, though a pagan from Moab, leaves behind all that is familiar because she knows that committing herself to Naomi is the right thing to do. And she makes a vow much like a marriage vow. We read it earlier. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried, till death to us part. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. In all things, they are united. Second, Ruth cares for others while in despair herself. This is another way that Ruth is faithful in her lowliness. There are many women in this very room who know the pain of childlessness or the pain of losing a husband. Ruth knew that pain. Ruth knew the loneliness. She knew the sleepless nights and the tear-soaked pillow. She knew the ever-present cloud of an unknown future. And yet in her sorrow, in her pain, Ruth chose to care for Naomi. Ruth binds herself to someone whose life and circumstances are even more bitter than her own. And she focuses on serving her. In so doing, Ruth, in some ways, embraces her solitary existence by finding ways to throw herself into the aid of another. In addition to committing herself to Naomi, she works to care for them both. We see in chapter 2, she uh, respectfully asks Naomi for permission to let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. That means she's picking up the scraps that the employees have left over in their haste. Verse 7, she's there from early morning until the afternoon. She gleans until the evening, and then after it's dark, she beats out what she gleans and takes it home. So she's working hard to provide for Naomi and herself. What's more, I think it's safe to say that Ruth's commitment isn't entirely appreciated by Naomi. We see clues of this throughout the narrative. When Ruth commits herself to Naomi, Naomi doesn't really respond. It says she says nothing. Before, they they wept together at parting, and Naomi kind of gives her a cold answer of nothingness. When they go to Bethlehem, everybody says, Can this be Naomi? Not even acknowledging Ruth. That old Moabite. And what does Naomi say? I have come back empty. And you can see Ruth in the background saying, hello, empty? I've committed my life to you. Maybe Naomi was ashamed to come home with someone from Moab. Maybe she saw Ruth as functionally inadequate. She can't have children. How could she? She didn't have a husband. How could she care for me? Maybe she was simply depressed. She just couldn't see the care that Ruth was giving her. Regardless, Ruth is committed to caring for Naomi, even if Naomi isn't caring for her. Third, as we consider Ruth, Ruth trusts in the Lord. Naomi urged her daughters-in-law to go back to their own people and their own gods. Ruth doesn't want that. 
She knows enough about Yahweh, the God of Israel, to know that she wants God. She wants the God of Israel. She does not want the Baals. She says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Ruth doesn't know much about the Lord God, but she knows enough to move toward this God in faith. We also see this later when Boaz approaches her in the field. He blesses her and says, the Lord repay you, oh, sorry, the, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Maybe like Ruth, you've heard a little bit about the Lord. You've heard about him from other people. You don't know a lot about him, but you see the way the Lord is blessing other people, and you're moving toward him in faith. Let me encourage you, keep at it. The Lord is not done with you. Maybe you're caring for someone who doesn't reciprocate care or love. Let me encourage you, keep at it. The Lord is not done with you. Maybe you're struggling to be faithful and you want to give up and find comfort in something other than the Lord. Let me encourage you, pursue faithfulness. Maybe you are at rock bottom and feel like God can't rescue you or won't have you, let me encourage you. The Lord took a widow from Moab who pursued faithfulness in her lowliness and blessed that woman beyond her wildest dreams. The Lord is not done with you. Trust in him. Move toward him in faith. Do what is right in his sight. We've seen that Ruth was faithful in her lowliness, And next, we're introduced to a man whose circumstances are quite different. This man is blessed abundantly. He's winsome, he's wealthy, and he's wise. His name is Boaz, and he too is faithful to the Lord. This is our second point. So where Ruth was faithful in her lowliness, Boaz is faithful in his prestige. That's just a big word to say that he has power and authority and popularity. And Boaz is faithful in his prestige in at least three ways. First, he welcomes the outsider. Though Boaz is wealthy, he is not haughty. The introduction gives us a clue into this as he greets those who work for him, saying, The Lord be with you. And they're happy to see him. The Lord bless you. They have a good relationship because Boaz has been caring for his employees. He cares for those under his supervision as fellow image bearers and not as minions. In fact, he knows his crew so well that he notices someone new in the crowd of faces. It's Ruth. And he says, whose young woman is this? Now notice, he doesn't say who is this. He's not asking what is her name so much as this. Who is taking care of her? Whose young woman is this? When he learns who and whose she is, or rather that she does not belong to anyone other than Naomi, her mother-in-law, he encourages Ruth and he exalts her. Do you see him moving toward her in encouragement? He says, I've heard what you've done for Naomi. May the Lord bless you for that. Don't go anywhere else, my daughter. Stay here. I'll keep watch over you. 
Can you imagine just, oh, how life-giving and refreshing that would have been for Ruth in her time of despair? It seems from the text that even Naomi had not encouraged Ruth at this point. And what does Ruth do? She bows down immediately at his feet, and not in a way that is simply um, ceremonial, but in a way where she is so thankful for what Boaz has said to her. Look in 2.13, she says, You have comforted me in a time of great discomfort. Later, Boaz invites Ruth to his own table to share in his own food. Culturally, this is a sign of seeing someone as an equal. He invites her to the table. And this is true even in our modern age, right? If you're an outsider coming in, isn't it refreshing to be invited to someone's table? How much more when that person is prestigious or elite? Y'all, Boaz is at the cool kid's table, all right? He owns the field that all the food is coming from. He says, come here, join us. And even though Boaz was prestigious, wealthy, and well-liked, it didn't keep him from associating with the lowly. Second, Boaz protects the vulnerable, protects the vulnerable. As a widow, Ruth is physically vulnerable and she is emotionally vulnerable. She's left everything to care for Naomi. She doesn't have food, she doesn't have land, and the only family she has is a woman who is bitter towards the Lord, depressed, and somehow incapacitated from work. Boaz is caring enough to see her need and He addresses it himself. It's one thing to see that somebody needs something. It's another to pursue helping fulfill that need. He doesn't shirk responsibility and claim that Ruth is just not his problem. No, he takes her in. Consider how he cares for her physical needs from the passage. He says, he tells Ruth to use the water that his men have drawn. He invites her to a luxurious lunch along with him and the co-workers And she has so much, she has some to take home that night to Naomi. He tells his employees to leave a little extra behind for her. And when she comes home with about 40 pounds of barley after one day, Naomi is shocked in disbelief. Not only does he share from his abundance, but he also protects her from harm. Ruth doesn't have brothers or kindred of any kind who could protect her from men who might want to abuse her. For those who might want to take advantage of a single woman from another country, he has the forethought to take action to make sure the young men do not touch her. And he goes to Ruth and tells her that he's done that. Stay here. You don't need to worry. I'm watching over you. And I've told the young men they are not to touch you. And this is a real threat because when Naomi's there with her at dinner when she comes home late, she says, stay in his field so you won't get assaulted. Boaz watches over Ruth and protects her from harm. Now, later in the narrative, Ruth makes herself vulnerable to Boaz. 
Do you remember Naomi's instructions? Wash, put on oil, put on your best clothes, go lie at his feet. Now, you can imagine, and here's Boaz, had a night some good-natured partying, right? His heart is merry, the text says. And he wakes up at midnight, and there's a woman at his feet. And she's clean. She smells good. She's well-dressed. And she basically says, take me, Boaz, I'm yours. You know, when she says, pull your wing over me, that's actually closer to an actual physical movement than we might think, because the wing is the part of the robe that hangs down from the arm. Pull the blankets over me, Boaz. It's dark. Nobody knows that she's there. She has approached him. What does Boaz do? Does he take advantage of her vulnerable position? No. Boaz is faithful to the Lord. He is faithful because he knows what is right in the Lord's sight. He doesn't take advantage of her. In fact, in the morning, he arranges for her to leave quietly in the dark so that her reputation stays intact. He even sends a small gift of grain so that Naomi knows that Ruth found favor in him. Men, this is the kind of man that you want to be. You want to be like Boaz. A man who protects the vulnerable and doesn't take advantage of women. Church, this is the kind of church we want to be. A church that welcomes the outsider to the table. A church that knows people's stories as we help. A church that shelters the vulnerable. And by God's grace, I see a lot of Boaz in our church, and I'm thankful. Very thankful. May we be like Boaz to all who enter our workplaces and our homes and our church. Third, under Boaz, Boaz trusts the Lord. Now get this, friends, where Ruth trusted the Lord with what little she knew about the Lord and his law, Boaz trusted the Lord with everything that he knew about the Lord and his law. And unlike the Pharisees that will come after him in Jesus' day, Boaz follows not just the letter of the law, being particular and saying, I'll do just this much. He follows the heart of the law. God's heart in sheltering and protecting the vulnerable. We see this initially because he not only lets Ruth glean, which was commanded in the law, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, if you want to look it up, but by following the heart of the law, welcoming her in, asking her to come to his table, providing lavishly for her physical needs. The big picture story, however, is that Boaz is a family redeemer. Depending on your translation, you might say kinsman redeemer. Well, what does that mean? Provided in the law, passed down to Israel through Moses, a widow would be cared for by a family redeemer. Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 reads, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man 
shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, granted, that seems strange to our modern ears. But in this time, that would have been a means of relief and assurance. Remember, a widow without a son would have been on her own. She would have been destined to die or to lead a miserable existence until death. Boaz qualifies as a family redeemer. But he knows there is another man who is closer in relationship than he is. Now you might be thinking, what man wakes up in the middle of the night with a beautiful woman at his feet and thinks, "Uh, let's not get too excited. Technically, there's somebody closer. But I'll tell you, a man who is faithful to the Lord knows the Lord and his law. Someone who uses his power and authority not to abuse, but to lead, to lead out in faith. Boaz lives by the law of the Lord and not by his hormones or by his emotions. And I would say in a more romantic vein, I think it also shows that Boaz is already thinking about Ruth. When I wake up in the middle of the night, I can barely remember my name. But Boaz has been thinking about Ruth, and he's already been telling himself, if this is going to happen, this is the way it's got to happen. It's a long shot, but if it, you know, if it happens first, right? Boaz is honored. He's been thinking about her while rehearsing the law to himself, and he wakes up in the middle of the night and has an answer. And while there is, I'm sure, a temptation for Boaz to sleep with Ruth, Boaz does not take advantage of the situation, but he gets to work in making their relationship right before the Lord. He doesn't ask her to move in with him for a while to see if things are going to work out. He lays down his life to commit to her rather than using her for emotional and sexual support only to discard her later when it pleases him. Boaz gets up early in the morning and says, I'm going to make Ruth my bride. Why? Because Boaz wants Ruth and he wants to be faithful to the Lord. You see, friends, Boaz trusted that the Lord's Lord's ways are right and good. His ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. He doesn't trust his own selfish desires, but he placed his life and his riches and his name on the line to follow the Lord. And that brings us to our third point, that the Lord is faithful in his sovereignty. Both Boaz and Ruth, in their own ways, their own circumstances, choose to live in faithfulness. And in so doing, they trusted that God would uphold his promises. They trusted that the Lord would be faithful in his sovereignty and in his power. So through the covenants, God has made promises to his people. But what good is a promise if you don't have the power to fulfill it or you don't have the will to fulfill it? Boaz and Ruth trust that God has both the means and the heart to fulfill his law, to fulfill his promises in the law. We see this in at least three ways, okay? First, the Lord orchestrates good for the faithful. Neither Ruth nor Boaz knew what the Lord had in store for them. 
Neither of them knew what tomorrow would hold. They simply trusted in the Lord from day to day. And through that faithfulness, the Lord worked. Ruth does not have the book of Ruth in front of her, thinking, oh, well, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, I can do that. She doesn't have the multiverse of gladness, right, where she can figure out how her decisions will affect the future. No, Ruth and Boaz concluded, as the saying goes, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. I don't know what the morning brings, but I know who brings the morning. Ruth, when she left Moab, she didn't know what Israel was like. But she knew that Naomi needed her. Ruth didn't know that she would end up in Boaz's field. She just got up and went to work one day. Ruth didn't know that a family was in her future. She simply trusted the Lord with the day called today. Friends, be faithful today. Be faithful today. What does the Lord require of you? You don't know the Lord's plans for you, but God is good and kind and loving and powerful to fulfill his promises. Through Ruth and Boaz's everyday, run-of-the-mill faithfulness, God was painting a bigger picture, one that they couldn't see until somebody looked back later on their life to testify of God's goodness. Second, the Lord orchestrates good for generations to come. The surprise twist at the end of Ruth is that Ruth the Moabitess is the great-grandmother of Israel's King David. Can you believe that? Think about it. Without Ruth, there is no David, no slain Goliath, no champion of Israel, no shepherd king, no psalmist, no line of kings for Judah. No Ruth, no David. If that weren't enough, the Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy. And do you know who is mentioned in the family tree of Jesus the Christ? Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess. It's unlikely that Ruth or Boaz even knew that David would be king. They probably didn't live that long. Just like us, Ruth and Boaz only knew today. You don't know what the Lord will do tomorrow through your faithfulness today. Let me say that again. You don't know what the Lord will do tomorrow through your faithfulness today, in this hour. A decade from now, a century from now, God will be using your faithfulness to bring about his good and sovereign plans. Don't you want to be a part of that? What are those plans? I don't know. I don't know what those plans are. You don't know what they are. But you know what? Sometime after David was born, somebody said, I know a story about David's great-grandmother. Do you want to hear it? Now, you might be thinking, could God really use me? I, I don't see how. I'm too sinful, too disgusting. Well, God orchestrated history to redeem a woman from Moab to bring him into the family tree of his son, 
and to make that part of the story. Yes, the Lord can be glorified through you if you humble yourself to Jesus and submit to him. Third and finally in this point, the book of Ruth foreshadows the coming king. Ruth laid her life down to save Naomi, even when Naomi didn't appreciate what she was doing. Jesus is the greater Ruth, who went outside the camp to die in our place, laying his life down so that we might live forever, even while we were his enemies. This is what Christ has done for us. And like Ruth, we were once outside of God's promises, outside of his covenants. We were without hope, without life, without a future. We were not a part of God's family. But Jesus is a greater Boaz. Jesus is a family redeemer who calls us to be his bride even though we are unworthy. We have been called out of shame, out of despair, to feast at the Lord's table. We who were unloved are now called beloved. God has seen our affliction. He has seen our shame and our despair. God has seen that even though nothing good could be found in us, he sent his son Jesus to us to redeem us. And Jesus, in his lowliness, was faithful to the end. Jesus has risen to the right hand of the Father, and in his current prestige, Jesus is faithful to to provide for us, to protect us, as he calls us to be his bride, the church. Jesus is our family redeemer. He has rescued us. He is restoring us. And one day, we will feast with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the house of Zion. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, to lowly people like us. We know our Lord was despised and rejected for our sake, that we might be exalted with him. O Lord, grant us grace to meet each day with faithfulness unto you trusting that a life of holiness is both for our good and for your glory. We know that we will not be perfect. We confess that to you. But we thank you for changed hearts that long to be holy because you are holy and that we can make progress in this life being more like Jesus. O Lord, be with us whatever our circumstances may be. Give us wisdom and grace to choose what is right. We look forward to the day when we will look back on the life that you had for us, to rejoice in what you did and how you worked. And on that day, we will feast in the house of Zion at the marriage supper of Christ and his church. We look forward to that day with hope. May we meet each day with you and your goodness and your glory in mind. It's in Jesus' name we pray.